Section 40 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombau. Homicide, Part 17. The Goss Utterzook Tragedy, Part 16. Mr. McVeigh, addressing the court, said, In view of the fact that some of the witnesses in Baltimore have not complied with our request to come up here, owing to there being an election which was held there yesterday, we desire leave to retire for a few minutes for consultation with the prisoner as to the matter of arranging the testimony. Leave was granted by the court, who said the sheriff must accompany the prisoner. Mr. McVeigh and Mr. Perdue, of the prisoner's counsel, together with the prisoner and his wife and Sheriff Gill, retired to an adjoining room. Mr. Whitney, who had taken no part in the conduct of the defense since the introduction of the testimony of the Newark witnesses, remained in the courtroom. After some minutes spent in consultation, the parties reappeared in court when Mr. McVeigh said, May it please your honors, owing to the fragmentary manner in which we will be compelled to introduce our proof this afternoon, in consequence of the absence of various witnesses, it is thought hardly worth while to present any formal opening statement. These witnesses live out of the state, and, of course, are not amenable to process and the prisoner is not in such circumstances as will admit of his purchasing their attendance. All we can do is to have those persons who are here come upon the stand and tell their story in their own way. We will call Mrs. Goss and ask her the circumstances attending the death, as she supposed, of her husband. We will call in other members of the family who can throw light on this matter, and wherever the circumstances surrounding this cause enable us to do so, we will endeavor to meet the testimony that has been adduced. When that is heard, when this testimony is given, if the witnesses of whom I have spoken are not here, we will have to ask your honors to favor us with an adjournment until tomorrow. The excuse made by these witnesses for their non-appearance is that there is an election of an exciting character being held in the state of Maryland today, and those upon whom we rely have declared their inability to be here till the election is over. Mrs. Eliza W. Goss, Sworn and Examined I was the wife of Winfield Scott Goss. In the month of February, 1872, I was living at number 314 North Utah Street, Baltimore. At that time, my husband was not engaged in any business in particular, but he was working for himself, on the York Road, at Gilding, and working in a substitute for India Rubber. We had been boarding just opposite the place where he was engaged, at the house of Mr. Engel, from July till November, and then I went home to my mother's, where I was at the time of the burning. My husband was boarding there with me. I last saw my husband alive on Friday at noon, the second day of February, 1872. I first heard of the burning about half-past nine o'clock Friday night. When I first heard of the fire, I did not know that my husband was supposed to have been burned. 
I first heard of that at about eleven o'clock that same night. Mr. Lewis Engel gave me that information. He said he came at the instance of Mr. Utterzook. Mr. Utterzook came himself at about eleven o'clock. The coroner's inquest was held the next day. The remains reached my house at about six o'clock Saturday evening. I saw them and recognized them as the remains of my husband. They remained until Monday at one o'clock. I saw them two or three times during the interval. I accompanied the remains to Baltimore Cemetery, where they were placed in a public vault. They remained there until the following Thursday when they were put in the ground. I was present. Since the second day of February, 1872, I have not heard from my husband, have not received any communication from him, directly or indirectly. I had been married nine years on the 26th of last November. When the remains were taken to the Baltimore Cemetery, it was a public funeral. Handing witness a photograph not before shown any witness, it is a picture of Mr. Goss taken six or seven years ago. There was no scar upon my husband's forehead. His eyes were dark blue. Handing witness the ring heretofore introduced in evidence by the Commonwealth. I have seen this ring before. Mr. Perdue showed it to me. I have examined it. I do not believe it is my husband's ring. From my recollection of my husband's ring, where that one has a beating in the center, his ring was in regular cuts all round. Increases, grooves. Then there is a smooth appearance around the setting, on the top of that ring, which I do not think my husband's ring could have had, as he only had it and wore it about eighteen months, and that ring has a worn appearance to me. His ring had a similar stone, only I can't describe any marks on the stone at all. I know it was a dark green setting, but I did not know at all, until after this trouble, that his ring was what they call a bloodstone ring. I did not know what a bloodstone ring was. Cross-examined by Mr. Hayes. I was able to recognize the remains by the form of the head and size of the body and form of the neck, fullness of the neck. That was all there was for me to recognize. The Court. Was there at that time any question about it that called for examination? Witness. No, sir. The court. You had no occasion at that time to think whether they were or were not your husband's remains? Witness. No, sir, I did not. Mr. Hayes. Please give us a description of your husband as you recollect him. Witness. Well, he had dark brown hair, very clear, smooth skin, dark blue eyes. He wore a heavy mustache and goatee at the time of his death. He was stout-built. His height I cannot say. Witness further testified. When I saw the remains, they lay in a coffin and were covered with a sheet. I uncovered them. The whole body was of a brownish color. I could not see the teeth as the lips were closed. The eyes were closed also. The hair was burned off, except a small portion on the back of the neck. Mr. Hayes. I was about to show the witness a letter which, unfortunately, I do not have at hand, but may have to-night. It may be interesting for her to see. I would ask her, do you know Miss Eliza Burke? Witness. I do. Question. Where does Miss Eliza Burke live? Answer. 
at Mr. Utterzook's. She is his servant. Question. That is a picture of whom? Handing witness a photograph. Answer. It is a picture of A. Campbell Goss, a brother of my husband. The letter of which the Commonwealth's attorney spoke as being one that might interest the witness to see, but which was not then at hand, is a remarkable document. The letter was addressed to Alexander C. Wilson, 329 Mulberry Street, Newark, New Jersey, and arrived at its destination by due course of mail, but not until after W.S. Goss, alias Wilson, had left there to meet Utterzook in Philadelphia. The letter was found at the above-mentioned address, the boarding-house of Mrs. Toombs, early in the investigation of this case, by parties in the interest of the insurance companies. The letter is postmarked Baltimore, Maryland, July 1st, 7 p.m., and the address upon the envelope was found to be, unmistakably, in the handwriting of A. Campbell Goss, the brother of W. S. Goss, alias A. C. Wilson, and brother-in-law of Mrs. Goss the witness. Upon opening the letter, it was found to be written in a hand evidently seeking disguise, and was signed Miss Eliza Burke, Conway Street. It was easily ascertained that Miss Eliza Burke, as Mrs. Goss testifies, Supra, was a servant in Utterzook's family, an ignorant sewing-woman who had been in their employ some time. Her name was used by Campbell Goss as his nom de plume while in correspondence with his brother, W.S. Goss, and during their conduct of the conspiracy to defraud the insurance companies. Notwithstanding the attempt at disguise, upon being compared with that of Campbell Goss, the writing is shown to be the same. The following is the letter. Mr. Wilson, I wrote to you more than two weeks ago, and asked you to send me word whether you would meet you in Philadelphia or not, and to direct to you, in my care Conway Street, the old house. I am very anxious to hear from you, and am waiting patiently. If you will meet him, state when and where. All is right here so far. W and J and I had a long talk yesterday, and it is all in our favor." Please write soon and direct as I told you, and oblige, yours etc., Miss Eliza Burke, Conway Street, July 1st, 73. Let me hear from you by return of mail. C. It will be observed that in this letter Campbell Goss is desirous of arranging for his brother, W.S. Goss, to meet you, Utterzook, in Philadelphia. But, through some blunder on the part of the conspirators, W. S. Goss had already met Utterzook in that city, and the two were on their way to Bears Woods, riding in the buggy, at the very hour this letter was postmarked in Baltimore. The initial letter C of Campbell Goss's name may be noticed in the bottom left-hand corner of the letter. The long talk with W. and J. refers to a talk held by Campbell Goss with his attorneys in the insurance suits then pending. Messrs. Whitney and Johns of Baltimore. In the early part of Utterzook's trial, Mr. Whitney appeared and assisted in the conduct of the defense, but before the Commonwealth closed its case, he withdrew from active participation in the cause. At the time when Mr. Whitney thus withdrew, Mr. Johns, who was then in Westchester attending the trial, 
privately expressed his unqualified astonishment at the overwhelming testimony produced by the commonwealth, and also his indignation at having been thus imposed upon and deceived by his clients, the Goss and Utterzook families. The Goss-Langley photograph, heretofore introduced in evidence by the commonwealth, was handed to witness, who identified it as a picture of her husband, standing, and of Mr. Langley, sitting. Question. Will you please describe your husband's ring? Answer. His ring is of the same style as this. The ring heretofore introduced in evidence by the commonwealth. It was the same looking, but the only difference I can remember is that his ring was made round in the ridges instead of this beading. That is as I recollect it. I do not know where my husband got the ring. He had it about eighteen months. I first learned of his having it when he came home with it on his finger. I never learned what became of his ring. The stone in this ring is the same looking as in that of my husband's, according to my recollection. I could not say anything about the stone more than that his had a stone in it of the same color and size. The court. One other thing about which I want to be certain. I understood you, Mrs. Goss, to say that your recognition of these remains as your husband's was from the size of the neck and the form of the body. Witness. The general appearance of the body in size and shape. The court. Was that your only means of recognition? Witness. The only means there were left. The court. The expression from the features of the face? Witness. There was none. David Arden. I am stepfather of Mrs. Goss. I live at number 314 Utah Street, Baltimore. Mr. and Mrs. Goss lived at my house in January 1872. I remember Mr. Lewis Engels coming there on the night of the 2nd of February, between 9 and 10 o'clock. He came and informed us that the house was burned. I asked him then what had become of Goss. I went with him up to the place of the fire on the York Road. I found nothing there but the cinders. There was no one about the building at the time I got there. I first saw the remains the next morning at the inquest. I recognized the shape of the head, the full neck, the very full chest, and in that manner identified the remains. I had known Mr. Goss about eighteen years. There was no scar upon his face. He was of fair complexion and smooth skin. I saw the remains which were exhumed at Penningtonville. It was on the 19th or 20th of July, the day after the examination made by Drs. Lewis and Howard. I had two views of these remains photographed at the time. Pictures handed to witness who identified them as the ones he had taken. Mr. Hansen from Baltimore was with me at the time. He is a hatter by trade, and he had made hats for Mr. Goss for a number of years. Mr. Hansen did not take any measurement of the head at Penningtonville, but he took a good view of it. Cross-examined by Mr. Hayes. I identified the charred remains as those of Mr. Goss so far as they could be recognized. I recognized the shape of the head, the neck, and the breast. I recognized a resemblance. I recognized the shape of the head. There were no features. I have seen other heads of the same shape. The neck did not appear swollen. It was a little contracted, not much. 
it did not look quite so large as Goss's neck. It was a full, round neck. Of course, I have seen other full, round necks of the same kind. The fullness of the chest in these remains was peculiar. I have seen other men the same way. Under the circumstances, I thought I could see the form of Mr. Goss there. There was no question at that time about these remains being his. I never saw his teeth, could not describe them. His eyes were dark blue. His hair was very dark between black and brown. He had a full, round head, good forehead, square eyes, person very erect, broad shoulders, and very full chest. When I saw the remains at the inquest, they were in a box. I could not see the shoulders very well. I examined the remains at Penningtonville. That head was not like Goss's head. That head was not a very long head. It was a round head, like Mr. Goss's head. The body at Penningtonville was lying in a coffin. I did not raise the head up. It lay in the coffin all the time I saw it. I thought his head was not as full as Goss's. Goss's head was very full. The features were so disfigured that I could not tell in what other respects it differed from Goss's head. I did not see the chest of the remains in Penningtonville. We did not go very close. We did not want to go very close. We did not stay there long enough to uncover it. It was so offensive. I saw just the head, and that satisfied me at once. I did not expect to find the corpse of Mr. Goss there. I went there because I thought it would be well for me to identify if that was Goss. It was said Goss had been found there, and I thought I would go and make sure of it. John M. Branson I went to Penningtonville with Mr. Arden. I am a photographer and took the picture of those remains. One is a full-faced view and the other is a side face. They were taken on the 19th of July between 3 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Cross-examination. We had to prop up the body at an angle of 60 degrees, but it would slide down. We could not get it a full front face, and it shortened the head by the angle. It was in a decomposed condition to take a picture in. Its hair was all off. The teeth had been taken out, and some of the flesh had been removed from the face. The sun was shining on it, and it blurred the picture. It had cleared off from a shower, and the sun was shining very brightly, which had a tendency to blur the picture. The features were all gone. They were of no account. There was just the outline of the face. Sarah Moore At the time of the fire, I was cook in the family of Mr. Lowndes on the York Road in Baltimore. Just before the fire broke out, I saw Mr. Goss standing outside the door of his cottage. His sleeves were rolled up, and he held a light in his hand. He went in and locked the door, and I saw no more of him. I was eating my supper when a dog barked at the kitchen door, and opening it, I saw flames coming out the window of the cottage. I went and told Mr. Lowndes. The house I was in was about one hundred yards from the fire. Monday, Willie and I went over to see if we could find anything. Willie found a pistol and something like a teaspoon. Cross-examination. It was between seven and eight o'clock when I saw Mr. Goss standing out of doors. When he went in, I heard him lock the door. There was one other door in that house that opens out of doors. It was in the back end of the house. Redirect. 
The other door was closed by being propped. It was not nailed. Once they nailed it, I believe, but it broke down and they had it propped. Re-cross-examination. It was propped by logs against it. Mrs. Sarah Arden. I am the mother of Mrs. Goss. I was at home at the time the charred remains of Mr. Goss were brought to my house. As far as recognition goes, I recognized them as his remains, but could not tell a great deal about it, only from the form of the head and on account of the very large neck and the form of the shoulders. I have never seen Mr. Goss nor heard from him from that time to this. The sheet upon the body was much stained by blood and the black cinders. I never saw a scar upon Mr. Goss's forehead. Cross-examination. It was impossible to recognize the body in the condition it then was. Mr. Goss did not have good teeth. I never noticed his teeth. Mr. Goss wore a mustache so that you could not see his teeth. I know that he had not good teeth because I heard him complain of his teeth. Mrs. Elizabeth Miller. I live in Penn Township, on the road from Jennerville to Penn Station. Mrs. Jane Utterzook was at my house during the early part of last July. Her son, William E. Utterzook, the prisoner, came there to see her in the evening of the first day of July. He stayed there while we were at supper and talked a while, and took his supper there. After supper he went away. I next saw him about nine o'clock in the morning of the second of July. He came in with his coat on his arm, and I took him into the sitting-room. He went out on the porch after that. He was there about half an hour. I did not hear any conversation between him and his mother. They went upstairs to change his shirt. I do not think he came down again until dinner was ready. He had no shirt of his own to change with, and borrowed one of Mr. Miller's. I did not notice anything about the condition of his clothing when he sat on the porch. I saw him in his shirt-sleeves without either coat or vest on. I noticed nothing unusual about his shirt or about his pantaloons, except they were very dusty. Cross-examination. He came to the house on the evening of July 1st in a wagon of some kind. He came on foot the next morning. He went away that evening down to Penn Station and came back again. I did not see him when he came back. He and his mother went upstairs soon after he came in that morning. I did not see him downstairs again until dinner time. He went upstairs again after dinner and came down to supper. I did not see him between dinner time and supper. End of section 40